Well, as you can see from the slide that is up on the screen behind me, and as many of you know, we've been spending the past few weeks talking about the will of God. And today we're going to land the plane on that discussion as we talk about walking in the will of God. Quick review from some of the stuff that we've had in in weeks past. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the hidden will of God a few weeks back, and that is that part of God's will, which is his secret will that he does not declare, but that he's absolutely committed to following through with. Um, It is by definition hidden, and even though it's hidden, we can still know it after it occurs. So that's how the hidden will of God works. However, we also have the revealed will of God, which we find in the scriptures in God's word. And since we are going to be talking about walking in the will of God today, we need to walk in that which has been revealed to us, that which God calls us to do. So we're going to be talking about how to walk in the will of God as revealed in Scripture. As we think about this, I want to take you back to something that happened to me years ago when I was in college. I worked in Yellowstone National Park, and as I worked in Yellowstone National Park, it's just a phenomenal place to be, phenomenal place to spend a summer. I was on a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ, but was working in the park at that time. And one of the things that's so neat about it, one of the many things is that wildlife, and a lot of times it's older wildlife, but it's still wildlife, Uh, will walk right on the side of the roads right next to your vehicle. And that's really great, but it's also a little bit dangerous. So because of that, there are signs and warnings posted all over the park that say, beware, this really is wildlife. These are wild animals. And if you attempt to interact with them, you may get hurt, et cetera, et cetera, all over the place. And as I was up there that summer, one of the rangers' favorite stories that they used to tell us again and again is that one of the rangers years ago had noticed a family that had stopped their car right next to a bear, and they noticed a lot of activity going on with this family in their car. And so the ranger looked a little more closely, wanted to know what was going on and why there was so much movement. And as he got closer, he noticed that it was a husband and a wife and a three-year-old child, a little three-year-old boy. And what the husband and wife were doing was actively spreading honey all over the three-year-old boy's hand. And one of them was getting ready to roll the window down because wouldn't that be a great picture when the friendly bear licked the honey off the three-year-old's hand? Yes, it's a horrifying story even all these years later. But the reason that that I share that with you this morning is is simply this. This family was apparently literate. They read the signs. They were native English speakers. That There was nothing hidden about the warnings that were given to them. And yet they decided to go ahead and, and try this on their own anyway. And, and as, as wild as, as that particular story is, and that is a true story as far as I know. The Rangers just repeated it again and again. Um, there is a little bit of me in this and a little bit of you in this story as well. And, and here's what I'm saying. Are you ever in a place where you feel like, you know, I know what I ought to do, but I think I can get away with doing this? You ever feel that way? Ever done that before? I know what I ought to do, but I think I can get away from without doing this. I think the consequences maybe won't apply to me. And so I'm going to go my own direction. 
And you see, that is an issue that we face on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis when we are making decisions in life and trying to walk in the will of God. Because sometimes the revealed will of God is very counterintuitive. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes God says, do X, but Y, option Y over here is easier than X. So I'm thinking maybe option Y is a good idea. Maybe the grass really is greener on the other side. Maybe there is a different way of doing things. And the way I would phrase this question is like this. Do I really believe that God's revealed will is best for me or is there something else out there? You guys know where the first place people struggled with this question was? It's in the Garden of Eden. God says, you know, you can eat of anything that you want in this garden except this tree. Huh. Really? Well, look, that looks like it's good for food. And then I have this serpent talking to me, which is kind of weird. But this serpent over here that, that's talking to me is saying, I'll be like God. So maybe there is a different way. Maybe there is something better out there. And we know the results of that. And we all experience the results of that in the fall of man. Adam and Eve weren't the only people in Scripture and history to ever do this. Solomon, actually, one of the wisest people that ever lived, we know this because God gave him a lot of wisdom, God gave him a lot of wealth, God gave him a lot of power. And at some point in Solomon's life, for whatever reason, we don't know why, he said, you know what, I'm just going to start living like there's no God. I'm going to make all sorts of choices out there. I understand what God's revealed will is, but I'm going to try this, and I'm going to see what happens. And so Solomon's kind of our pioneer for seeing that the grass is greener on the other side. And, and you know the old saying, a picture's worth a thousand words? So I'm going to try to encapsulate Solomon's experience in a picture right here. I don't know if you've ever seen demotivator posters. Maybe there's something wrong with me. I love these. Um, this one's entitled or titled Mistakes, and what it says underneath it is it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> there is an entire book of the Bible that is written by a guy who tried things in a way other than God's way that serves as a warning to us as to what happens when we walk away from the revealed will of God. And so I'm just going to encapsulate really what it is that that Solomon has for us. Uh, In the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives us five proven strategies that are guaranteed to ruin our lives. So if you're here this morning, what I'm hoping that you will do with me is take these five strategies that we look at and think of them like those warning signs about wildlife in Yellowstone National Park. Like, yeah, really shouldn't go there. Of course, if you are here and you want to ruin your life, well, this will be pretty instructive for you as well because Solomon's going to tell us exactly how to do this. So, as you open your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes, I want you to notice some words that jump right out of the beginning of the book. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And I don't want you guys to miss the emotion that's behind these words. He's not just saying, oh, well, you know, just, just imagine this as a deep cry and wail of the soul. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That word vanity means emptiness. 
It means a void. It means darkness. It means futility. He uses that word 37 times in this book, and he says life is depressing and meaningless. And the reason that we find out as we go on that his life is depressing and meaningless is because he has completely divorced God from the equation. And the first way that he does this is this. If you want to experience deep depression just like Solomon's, pursue education without God. Pursue education without God. Pursue enlightenment without God. Try to answer the the larger questions about existence and the meaning of life without God. You know, I, I ran into an article this past week that, that really struck me on this. It's actually from a book. Um, and, from the, and this book actually has an excerpt that deals with an anonymous psychiatrist on a college campus. This is what she says. Radical politics pervade my profession and common sense has vanished. Dangerous behaviors are a personal choice. Judgments are prohibited. They might offend. Where I work, we're stuck on certain issues but neglect others. We ask, we ask about childhood abuse, but not about last night's hookups. We want to know how many cigarettes and coffee she's had each day, but not about how many other bad moral choices she's made in the past and the consequences. We strive to combat suicide, but shun discussion of God in ultimate meaning. My friends, it's, I've met very, very few atheists in my life that are truly happy. And yet, there is something that is appealing to us about looking for meaning and purpose in life without God, about trying to answer those questions. And and this is simply what, what is appealing about it in a nutshell. See, if we deny the existence of God, then there is no higher authority and no accountability. We're free to do whatever we want without fear of conscience or consequence. If God does not exist, there is no objective basis for right or wrong. And as Dostoevsky said in the Brothers Karamazov, without God, all things are permissible. So if I divorce God from the equation, I can do anything and no one can say that I'm wrong. The problem is that that approach never leads to joy or results in joy and happiness. Look at Solomon's experience with this as we skip down to verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. And he says, it's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased in wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realize this also is striving after the wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief and increasing knowledge in, results in increasing pain. Increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. What is he talking about? What he's saying is, 
I have set my mind to know everything that there is to know. And guess what? I can't know everything that there is to know. All I do is continue to uncover more questions without answers. And as I uncover more questions without answers, I'm never encountering the real important answer, which is what is life all about? Why has God put me here? And what happens when I die? And that is exactly what he says at the end or the second part of chapter 2. Verse 15, Then I said to myself, As in the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, This too is vanity, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming of days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. In other words, it doesn't matter that I'm wise and I know all this stuff, because if I was a fool, we all end up in the same place. We die. We're dead. And then beyond that, as you consider chapter 1, and if you look earlier on in chapter 1, he talks about life being reduced to an endless series of cycles. You know, all the rivers flow into the ocean. The ocean's never full, yet the rivers keep on flowing. And the winds continue to blow, and they don't stop. And life is nothing but endless, meaningless cycles. And there's no real meaning to existence. My friends, the, the sadness, the darkness of an approach to life like that We see by creation that there is a God, by the extreme order of creation. We see that he has an appreciation of beauty. We see his intelligence. And in all that, there is an invitation that he extends to each one of us to come to him and know him, to fellowship with him. And through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ, to find ultimate purpose and meaning in life, through him, to understand that we are not here by an accident, that you and I are are creatures that were created by God to be in fellowship with him, fearfully and wonderfully made, not merely an accident of nature. And while we're not guaranteed freedom from suffering, we are guaranteed that there is a purpose and a plan behind that that's given by a sovereign God. That's God's will and design for us, but we walk away from that when we try to find ultimate significance and meaning and education about the purpose of life apart from Him. Solomon's not done, though. It's not surprising this is the first on the list. You move God from the equation, anything else goes. So he moves on to something else. He tells us this, If your goal is emptiness and a damaged legacy, run after sensuality. Do it as fast and as hard as you possibly can. A number of years ago, I remember having dinner with some friends of mine from college and spending time with one of my roommates. And uh, as I spent time with him, it appeared that as the evening got later, he wanted to spend more time with me. And we ended up sitting out on the curb talking at length, late in the evening. I don't even think I left until 2.30 or 3.30 in the morning. And, and this entire time, what he started unpacking to me was the fact that he'd made some really bad choices, that he'd gotten a girl pregnant, and now he didn't know what to do, and, and he had his ha- head in his hands, and he kept saying, I don't understand how I ended up here. I never thought I'd end up here. I don't know how that happened. 
Now, my friends, I have never met anybody who has engaged in sexual immorality and sensuality and later said, man, that was a really good decision. I'm glad I did that. When they're being honest and open about it. My friend now had something that he had to deal with, and there was a child coming into the world. There was a life coming into the world. You know, sex is something that was created by God as a good thing. God even wrote an entire book on the Bible about sex, ironically, through the hand of this author, Solomon. But when you take it outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman, some bad things happen. And that is exactly what Solomon did. Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And he says, and behold, it too is futility. And then you skip down to the end of verse 8 and you find out one of the means through which he was testing himself by pleasure. He says, I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men many concubines. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, we have to define the word many. So keep your finger in Ecclesiastes there in chapter 2 and go back with me, if you will, to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 11, which talks about the reign of Solomon and specifically some choices that Solomon made in his reign. Now, King Solomon loved many, there's that word again, foreign women, <clears throat> along with the, the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. <clears throat> now Solomon started down this road with, with a, a decision, a, a smaller choice. Just like my friend, as we were able to unpack this years ago, we could see that while he said, I don't know how I ended up here, as we sort of replayed his life, there were a number of very small choices he made that caused him to end up where he was. So Solomon's first choice is to marry Pharaoh's daughter. Hey, why don't we go ahead and marry the daughter of the superpower down the street, and then we can cement an alliance with them. We won't have to worry about them. It's a very practical decision. <clears throat> it's also a little bit like marrying into a family where there's a family business and then going to work for your father-in-law. And what I mean by that is if, if his daughter, your wife, isn't happy, guess what? You're going to experience it in the workplace. So you have to make her happy. So Solomon now has to make Pharaoh's daughter happy, and he does that by basically allowing her religious practice to go on there in Israel. And so he starts there, and then he adds more and more wives on until we read in verse 3, and he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. Now that's a big number. A thousand is a big number. So let, let me help you wrap your mind around a little bit. Imagine that this entire sanctuary is filled with people of the opposite sex and you are married to each one of them. That is a thousand. Somewhere along the line, he said, I am just going to run after this as hard and as fast as I possibly can. And what, the, what were the results when he did that? 
Verse 3 again, the end. And his wives turned his heart away. And then in verses 4 through 8, it talks about how Solomon worshipped all these other gods. Verse 9, Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. Sound familiar? Here's what you say, Lord, but I think I can get away with this. I'm going to do this thing over here. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Bam. Damaged legacy. There it goes. Right there. And so for the rest of history now, as we read about this guy who had all the potential in the world We'll think about this huge mistake that he made that that really echoed down in the lives of his children and grandchildren for centuries after that. My friends, what's your legacy worth to you? What are your family and your kids? What are your future family and kids, your grandkids worth to you? To use a modern example, do you think Tiger Woods thought all that infidelity is a good idea now that he looks back on it? Think about all the millions of dollars that's cost him. Think about the relationship with his kids that that's cost him. Think about the fact that every time he's out there on the golf course now and his performance slips a little bit, people say, ah, you know, and they go right back to that infidelity and all that cost him. It's got an asterisk. Go back a few years further to a, a former president. You think Bill Clinton thinks Monica Lewinsky was a good idea now? He has a big asterisk after his legacy. Oh, yeah, the guy that got impeached. Okay. He goes to fundraisers. People slap him on the back, shake his hand. I'm so glad to see you, Mr. President. And then they're kind of making jokes like, hide your wives. I'm not saying to make fun of the guy. This is very serious. God is not trying to withhold something good from us. He's not holding out on us. He's trying to protect us. Solomon found out the hard way. He's paying the dumb tax for us. We need to pay attention to what he's saying to us from the book of Ecclesiastes. Thirdly, another bad strategy. If you want to ruin your life and hurt others, practice substance abuse. Go ahead, get after it. My dad used to share a story with me when I was a kid. My dad grew up in Chicago, and he grew up there. He was a kid in the, in the late 30s and in early 40s, and he came from a very poor family, lived in a very rough part of the city. And my dad, when he was 10 years old, had to go to work in a grocery store to help the family pay bills and to keep groceries on the table. While my dad was at the grocery store, it was determined that he was a good employee, and he was faithful and he did work well and and that was noticed not only by the grocery store owners but by other people as well and I mean probably the best way to refer to them is just as low-level mobsters and so they pulled him aside one day and they said uh they said hey Don that's by the way I'm the third in case you're wondering um hey hey Don uh you know we we can pretty much give you five times as much money right now if you'll come to work for us running numbers for bookies and uh, my dad told me that he said, thanks, but, but no thanks. I said to him, Dad, why didn't you take the money? 
You needed to, to feed your family. He said, oh, Don, once those guys get a hook in you, they never let go. My friends, there are some things in this world that once they get a hook in you, they never let go. And substance abuse is one of those things. And the sad thing is, it is such a big part of this society, which as it is completely or, or continually distanced itself from God, divorced itself from God, substance abuse becomes greater and greater because people aren't happy. People aren't experiencing joy. And as I look at it in the sanctuary, I know for a fact, some of you may have wrestled with this in your own personal life. Some of you may have wrestled with this or be wrestling with it in your family life. And there's hardly probably a life in here that has not been touched by substance abuse. So here's what Solomon has to say about this. Verse 3, hey, I'm after pleasure. So I explored, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 3, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven for the few years of their life. What it's talking about him doing is that he was looking for exactly the right combination of substances so that he could become just as intoxicated, so that on one hand he'd really enjoy the intoxication, and on the other hand he could kind of think through it and chronicle what was going on in his own life to see if, if, if it was worth it. He was basically looking for the, per, for the perfect high and a way to report it to other people. But I think in the book of Proverbs you have his experience listed. He talks about this in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. He says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever's intoxicated isn't wise. Man, you say things when you're under the influence. You do things under the influence. You can't take it back, and once it's out there, it's out there. A little bit further on, Proverbs chapter 23, starting in verse 29, he paints a picture of somebody that's a drunkard. Now think about this. Remember, we've been talking about depression, starting in verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? And who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on top of a mast. They struck me, but I didn't become ill. They beat me and I didn't know it. When shall I awake? I'll seek another drink. My friends, the, the, the reason that Scripture and God addresses the issue of drunkenness is not, again, because he's trying to keep something good from us. It is because he doesn't want something to get a hook into us that could potentially ruin our lives and hurt other people. Solomon did that, caused problems. Next strategy, number four. If you want to waste your life, get your significance from your work. You know, work is a good thing. Work is something that God has created all of us to do. Work is something that God wants us to enjoy to a point. But work is something that we should never get our identity from. We need to get our identity from whose we are in terms of the fact that, that we belong to God 
never from what we do. Work is a good thing, but again, a, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a controlling thing. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a controlling thing. And if you and I are getting our identity from work, our work has gone to the place of becoming a controlling thing. This is exactly what Solomon does. He talks about it in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You have all these verbs that, that talk about work. If you look at verses 4 through 6, pay attention to this. I enlarged my work. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted them all kinds of fruit. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Now that may look like just some projects he was doing around his house because he had a huge house. Actually, he was doing the work of a king. Kings were supposed to get involved with building monumental projects as a means of diplomacy because then when your neighbors came on diplomatic missions, they would say, oh my goodness, you are so wise and so rich and so powerful that you have all these awesome monuments running throughout your property and throughout your kingdom. So this is what he was supposed to be doing, but notice that his motivation for doing it is wrong. Because in every one of those, those verses where you have the verb of him enlarging or making, his purpose for that is stated very clearly. He doesn't say, I'm doing it for the Lord. He doesn't say, I'm doing it to serve the people in, the, in his kingdom. He says, I'm doing it what? For myself. And you'll see that repeated again and again. I did this for myself. I did this for myself. I did this for myself. And Solomon is attempting to please himself and find significance and satisfaction solely from his work outside of a relationship with God. My friends, it is very dangerous when we do this. Great quote from Tim Keller. When you make work your identity, if you're successful, it destroys you because it goes to your head. If you are not successful, it destroys you because it goes to your heart and therefore destroys your self-worth. Powerful, powerful stuff. <clears throat> so what impact did it have on Solomon? Verse 17. Pay attention to this. Does this sound happy? So I hated life. <laughs> How many of us want to hate life? So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man he'll come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all of the fruit of my labor which I had labored under the sun. Yeah. That's what happens when we divorce God from the equation. Great positive example from Joe Stoll. Joe Stoll has been a very successful Christian author, pastor, president of, of Christian schools. This is what he says in one of his books about this issue. <clears throat> he says, I'm becoming increasingly aware that life does not go on forever. When we're young, we think we're bulletproof. We live like we'll never die, but when your knees protest certain movements and your eyesight and memory begin to grow fuzzy, reality sets in. I can see the day coming when there'll be another president of Moody, a better one at that. There'll be other preachers who bless hungry hearts. And me, 
I'll be sitting in the corner of some nursing home waiting for them to ring the lunch bell. And if life up to that point has been all about me, that is going to be a sad and empty day, a vain day. No matter what they're serving for lunch that day, it'll be sad and empty. Why? Because I will have, because all I will have is me, which at at that point won't be much. But if my life has been about knowing Jesus and experiencing a deepening relationship with him, as I sit in that corner of the nursing home waiting for the lunch bell to ring, he'll be there with me. The mighty son of God, the bright and morning star, the desire of all nations, the great shepherd of the sheep, the wondrous creator of all, the king of kings and lord of lords. And he'll be more wonderful on that day than ever before. He'll walk with me as I toddle along the linoleum in my walker. He'll talk with me and I won't have any trouble hearing him when he tells me that I am his own. He'll say, well, Joe, you're almost home. And I'll say, Lord, the sooner the better. Isn't that great? We find our identity in a relationship with him and our significance in a relationship with him, never from our work. Finally, if you want to experience deep despair, live for material goods. Interesting statistic that I I ran across uh, this past week as I prepared for this lesson. There are a ton of self-storage places in the United States. Um, Yeah, and you guys have absolutely run into those. Um, And there's 2.3 billion, with a B, 2.3 billion square feet of storage space in America uh, in these storage facilities. Now, predominantly what people put in these storage facilities, they say, are items that are important to them that they cannot store in their own homes. Yet over the past 50 years, the size of the average house in the United States, the square footage has doubled. Do you guys see what's going on? We're becoming wealthier. We're becoming people with more and more and more and more possessions. And yet we're not becoming any happier, are we? And that's because God has not designed goods, material goods, to make us happy. Think back to Christmases when you were a kid. How many of you guys remember those? So you look forward to the day of Christmas. And you get these awesome presents. I remember from the 60s getting stuff like Major Matt Mason. It's another story. You guys can look that up on the internet. And then those presents are, they're awesome, and you enjoy them. Are they as awesome six months later? So six months later in the summertime, what are you saying? This is boring. I can't wait for Christmas to get some new stuff. Because the new stuff's going to interest me. But you see, guys, it never satisfies long term. And God's point here is not that it's wrong to have material possessions, but it is wrong to live for them and to seek satisfaction through them. Look at what Solomon says in chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. We talked about the production verbs that are in verses 4 through 6. There are collection or hoarding verbs in verses 7 through 9. I bought male and female slaves, 
and I had home-born slaves. I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem, and I collected for myself gold and silver. Got a lot of stuff. Got an awful lot of stuff. And yet, did any of this stuff satisfy him? Well, he talks about material goods in chapter 5, if we skip ahead to chapter 5. And we start in verse 10. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase as well. So what advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man doesn't allow him to sleep. You know what he's saying? saying material possessions actually end up costing you sleep because you end up worrying about the state of those things and the state of your investments. If you're poor, you've got nothing to lose. So you go ahead and sleep even if your stomach isn't full. If you're rich and you've got a full stomach, you've still got all these worries about stuff. <clears throat> when those riches were lost through a bad investment and he'd fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will remain as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can't carry in his hand. You can't take it with you guys. We can't do it. That's Solomon's point. Again, God warns us away from these things, not because he's keeping something good from us, but because he wants the best from us. You know, my concern as I think through what we've gone through today in Ecclesiastes is this. You know, I don't want anyone to walk away here thinking that walking in the will of God is defined by what I don't do. Well, because I've not done all these things, it means I'm walking in the will of God. And that isn't the case at all. Walking in the will of God always involves living in obedience to Him because we love Him and by faith we know that He wants the best for us. And this is where joy is found. Having said that, we need to remember that we have a natural tendency to go our own way. And when we do that, if I were just to summarize all this with one statement, our natural tendency is to replace the king with a thing. And so I think Solomon would approve of the big idea that I'm paraphrasing for his first two chapters. Um, And I'm going to put this as the big idea of the sermon today. If I replace the king with the thing, my life will sting. God does not want our lives to sting, my friends. He he wants our lives to have purpose and meaning and joy that's found in a close walk and a relationship with him. But remember, we live in a very secular, materialistic nation. All the things I talk with you guys about today are pressed on you on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis, and you know it. So when you feel that pressure and you have to decide, does God want the best for me? Or am I going to chase after this stuff? Just remember, if I replace the king with the thing, my life is going to sting. Well, there'll be people up here to to pray with you from our prayer team as you have prayer needs. But why don't we take a moment right now and go to the Lord. Father, we just thank you again for the warning that we have from the life of Solomon the warning that we've had from this man who went ahead and tried life apart from you and comes back and, and tells us
through the pages of Scripture years later that is just a dry, depressing, dull, painful life. Lord, thank you for offering us abundant life and hope and joy and meaning and purpose and eternal life through a relationship with Jesus Christ that we don't do anything to earn. We just come to you by faith and say, I'm trusting you to take care of my issue with sin and to give me all the the blessings and to make me the type of person you want me to be. Thank you, Lord, for the warnings you give us from your word. And please give us the faith to trust in your character always and to believe you always that your way is best. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.